Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi there. Happy New Year. This is Neil Garfield broadcasting from Duval County, Florida, this ninth day of January 2020, our first show of the year. If you think we're doing the right thing, putting on these shows, writing the blog, and responding to your registration forms, please go to the homepage of the Living Lies blog and make a donation of $5 or more today. I apologize in advance that my allergies are acting up again and making me cough. So that showbiz, I may cough during this presentation. This is where both inexperienced lawyers and no experienced homeowners get stuck. The law is not just about substance, what is right and what is wrong. It's mainly about procedure and the rules of evidence. It's mainly, though, about civil procedure, which is how to end the dispute. That's the point of the courts, how to end it. It's on procedural rules and laws and use of laws of evidence that foreclosure mills win cases. So I'm going to show you a few things today, tonight, uh, that will help you uh, get more traction and be on the winning end of this starting from the premise that most of these foreclosures are not permissible under law, but if you fail to challenge their assertions or implications or assumptions, then your failure to challenge what they're saying is going to make what they're saying the law of the case. So that's how you lose. And you also have to make a decision as to which items you're going to challenge out of the many that are possible and when you're going to challenge them and how you're going to challenge them. So let me start with a simple example. The law says do not commit murder. John Doe commits murder. Does he go to jail? No. Not unless there's an investigation in which a prosecutor charges him with the crime and a jury is convinced that he killed the victim and the jury is convinced that the killing was murder and not self-defense or something else. So if John Doe commits the murder and Frank Lohman is charged with the crime that John Doe committed, 
he goes to jail if the witnesses say it was him and the evidence points to him, but that only happens if Frank Lohman fails to defend. If he does, and he does so successfully, the burden might shift back to the prosecution to make their case. If he fails to defend, then he goes to jail even though he had nothing to do with the crime. If you fail to defend foreclosure, you lose the house even though the party who initiated the foreclosure had no right to do it. That's how the dispute is ended. Those are the areas least understood by laymen and even many lawyers. The rules of procedure and evidence are intended to move cases along as quickly as possible and as fairly as possible but not necessarily where the outcome is considered fair by one or more of the litigants. Due process does not mean that the judge is required to hear all your possible arguments. It means that you have a right to be heard depending upon time constraints imposed by the court. So you must figure out and choose which of the many possible points you want to focus and which of those you can argue persuasively such that a judge who is initially biased against you will change their mind and rule for you. Bottom line, out of 50 issues, choose three. If you choose the right three, then banging on them is going to most likely result in a favorable outcome for you. Again, with the presumption that most of these foreclosures are illegal. Lawyers and homeowners get very frustrated with judges, other lawyers, and even with me because nothing makes sense. And that's because that's the way the brokerage firms on Wall Street want it, and it's the way the foreclosure mills do it. They grab control of the narrative without anyone noticing that that's what they're doing. And the next thing you know, you are speaking their language and arguing your defenses within their narrative. Put, Let me put that another way. You've already admitted their case and are now saying but. And that's why I've said for the last 13 years, don't admit anything because they don't have a case. The lawyer for the homeowner or the homeowner themselves or himself, herself, becomes tongue-tied, unable to conceptualize or or verbalize a defense because they have been trapped by the use of labels without realizing it. So tonight, we're going to study the following. What is the reasonable explanation of this name, of this claimant in a foreclosure case, a judicial foreclosure case, but it could also be as it could be as plaintiff or as beneficiary in a non-judicial case. Bank of New York Mellon, FKA, formerly known as the Bank of New York Mellon, as trustee for the certificate holders, CWABS, Inc., 
Asset-Backed Certificate Series 2006-11. Most people, when they look at that, read it like, frankly, I read an insurance contract. My, my brain clouds over. See, you don't see what you're looking at. It's my contention that if you start right there, you'll see that they're not saying anything. So let's start with this. In most cases, you're not being foreclosed by anyone who could be liable for a wrongful foreclosure. That's because they didn't really appear as a party to the foreclosure, but it looks like it is the reverse. As soon as you start calling the case Boney Mellon versus homeowner or U.S. Bank versus homeowner, you are probably on the road to defeat. And the reason is that Boney Mellon or U.S. Bank or whoever the trustee is said to be has not appeared in their individual capacity and therefore it's not the bank versus you. We'll get into who they're there for in a moment. So this program is designed to alert you and give you the tools to prevent them co-opting the narrative so that you're already admitting that you're fighting against the bank when, in fact, Bank of New York Mellon doesn't even have a retainer agreement with the foreclosure mill. So as a prologue, I would point out, by the way, that I just received an email from one of my contributors, Bob G., showing that notices have gone out recently to closing agents and closing attorneys in New York. What I predicted long ago has happened. All across the country, lawyers and bank stooges who have been paid to do it have pointed to authority that said you can waive jurisdictional defenses or that race judicata or collateral estoppel or Rooker-Feldman could bar a jurisdictional defense. I said that, the, that all the courts that had decided that way were all wrong, and they were further bolstered by the passage of laws like in the state of New York, which said that you do waive it if you don't raise it in a specific way at this specific time. Now New York has come to its senses by reversing law, the law allowing waiver of a jurisdictional defense. The new law reestablishes a simple basic notion that if a court lacks jurisdiction, it, that means authority. It can't confer authority on itself, nor render any order or judgment that is affected by law, because by law the court, the court was not able to render such order or judgment in the first place. Previously, New York passed a law saying you automatically waive the defense of jurisdiction if you didn't raise it at a particular time in a particular way. That law was dead wrong. An order rendered by anyone lacking jurisdiction to enter it is simply void. There's a point to this, folks. It's not voidable, and it's not subject to ratification. It is a legal nullity, like it never happened. Just like a written instrument transferring a mortgage without selling the debt for payment of value. It is a legal nullity. That's true in all legal, uh, in all U.S. jurisdictions. 
No legislature can pass any law that makes something out of nothing. No judge can enter an order that makes something out of nothing. No order allowing foreclosure sale property is valid unless the order was rendered based upon a factual finding that the money proceeds of foreclosure would actually go to pay down the debt. It is not enough for the court to hope that is true. The court must know that it is true that the money is going to a creditor who owns the debt because they paid for it, and therefore the debt will be paid down. But all judges are expected to accept the case presented at face value unless it is contested. So if you fail to contest something other than jurisdiction or fail to contest something that could have a jurisdictional consequence, you could be stuck with a judgment of foreclosure that was and would have been otherwise invalid, void. So back to our example. If Bank of New York Mellon is named as the trustee for a trust and the trust is treated as though it owned the debt, note, and mortgage, failure to challenge that factual premise will result in a direct or implicit finding of fact that will defeat later claims of lack of jurisdiction, unless you can claim and prove a fraud upon the court, which actually isn't as hard as it sounds. So the law of the case becomes that the trust exists and owns the debt, note, and mortgage, and your failure to pay raises the presumption that the trust was injured by your failure to pay, and that adds up to foreclosure. That isn't bias. It's the rules of the game. It also doesn't dispose of the case if you handle it properly. So that's what brings us to today's topic. In any normal lawsuit, you have a plaintiff and defendant, John Smith versus Mary Rose. They're identified as being adults and able to sue or be sued. If it is two corporations fighting, it'll be ABC Inc., a Delaware corporation, versus XYZ Corporation, a Florida corporation. Get it? In all cases, you must be able to easily identify the claimant and the opposing party. If you write in a fictional party, say Donald Duck, the case gets filed. And if you fail to contest, Donald Duck is going to get a judgment. So the fictional party that does not exist unless the court uh, does not exist, then the court does not have jurisdiction and there is no legal claim. How could a fictional character have a claim? It doesn't. Under the law, fictional characters are not legal persons. So the only thing a court is allowed to do under all U.S. jurisdiction is to dismiss the case and close the file. And if the opponents are trusts, it would be John Smith as trustee for the Jones Smith Trust, a statutory or common law trust organized under the law's of the state of Delaware versus Jane Doe as trustee for the Amazing Grace Trust, a statutory or common law trust organized and existing under the laws of the state of New York. Get it? You're identifying the trust. 
That's not something you find in most of these foreclosures, in, in virtually any of them. See, in all cases, you know where to look if you want to make sure your opponent is, is who they say they are. That's step one. That first step is one that most people ignore. Don't do that. So let's look at the case at hand. It starts out with the words Bank of New York Mellon, which is easy enough, and it might even suffice if it was identified in the complaint as a commercial bank under, uh, under charter of laws of the state or under federal charter. But like most cases, it doesn't say N.A., which would be the federal charter, and it doesn't say that it's chartered under the laws of the state of New York, which means that the words Bank of New York could mean any number of things and refer to any number of entities because there are dozens of bank of entities, actually hundreds of entities, in which Bank of New York as words appear, Bank of New York Mellon, etc. So if that is the way the case is styled and that's the way it's repeated in the complaint, that's your first red flag that they're playing musical chairs or musical names so that they can send the proceeds of the foreclosure sale to anyone even if they're not holding the debt. And let me say again that it's not a foreclosure if, it's, if the action is not taken in order to achieve restitution for an unpaid debt owed to the claimant. So the next words are intentionally designed to create further confusion such that the human tendency to fill in blanks takes hold and we start thinking we know what is going on when we really don't. Don't blame the judge. He or she is human also and they are supposed to take everything at face value until challenged. Read carefully as we go letter by letter. It starts with the initials F-K-A, formally known as. What that means, formally known as, merely means a name change. Well, what was the name changed from? Look to the next words. It says Bank of New York Mellon Trustee. Hmm. So it was known as Bank of New York Mellon Trustee, but is now known as Bank of New York Mellon. What does that mean? Well, if the answer to that question is not found in the complaint, they have not pled a cause of action. Is Boney Mellon not a trust anymore? They don't tell us. But they're going to treat it as a trust as they litigate, even though they've not identified a trust by the place it was organized or in which it was, is doing business. One of the devices that is not commonly used is a motion for definite statement. Judge is very inclined to deny a motion to dismiss in these cases, but the same judges are much more amenable 
to granting a motion for more definite statement when you point out the ambiguity of the labels being used at the very beginning of the complaint. So you will notice that the foreclosure mills talk as though there is a trust, and it supposedly has been party to one of two transactions. It purchased the loans or it was given the loans by a settlor or trustor who purchased the loans for real money. You can't acquire debt without paying for it. But wait, there's more. The words continue to say, for the certificate holders. Another thing that most people just glance right over, like an insurance contract. I don't know what these words are. So the name change doesn't seem to apply or change the role of Boney Mellon because they're still saying that Boney Mellon is appearing in a representative capacity for the holders of the certificates, and it's not appearing in its own behalf, individually. So say you sued for wrongful foreclosure, uh, the actual entity that would be responsible for the damages in a wrongful foreclosure would start with the entity that foreclosed. Well, if you look at this caption, that's hard to figure out. Is it Bank of New York? Is it the certificate holders? Is it CWABS Inc? What is it? Can't answer those questions and the complaint is not complete. And you have a right to a more definite statement. So if Boney Mellon is appearing in a representative capacity for the holders of certificates, who are those holders and what is in the certificates and what relevance do the certificates or the holders have to the mortgage that is sought to be foreclosed? The, the real answer is there is no relevance because the certificates don't convey any right title or interest to any debt, note, or mortgage. So both the certificates and the holders are irrelevant. But if you don't change the challenge, that assumption by the court, the law of the case will become that the certificates are beneficiaries under a trust that they funded and that their money was used to buy your loan and that they're getting paid principal and interest payments and that upon foreclosure, they will get paid the proceeds of foreclosure. And the, the debt will have been paid down. None of that is true. But it will be treated as true in the courts unless you take the proper action to challenge it. It will become the law of the case. If you don't have your wits about you and you fail to challenge it in a credible and persuasive law. So decisions like that are not bad law. It just is the law. And pretending otherwise will result in a loss every time. It isn't judge bias. It's judges doing their job. But as one person litigating in New Jersey told me, judges are asking questions like, how do I know who the actual plaintiff is here? And then they order the attorney to submit a declaration of certification that clarifies the actual name of the claimant. And then they don't file that declaration of certification. 
in the hope that the judge will drop that demand that they file it. It's all up to you to keep them honest. And if you don't bring their failure to file to the judge's attention, it won't matter that they defied a court order. That's procedure. Remember, if there is no named plaintiff in a judicial foreclosure, or there is no named beneficiary in a non-judicial foreclosure, then there is no claim, no jurisdiction, and the homeowner is entitled to permanently bar that name from being used as a claimant against the homeowner for a debt that the homeowner might in fact owe, but not to the named claimant if there is no such claimant. You don't owe money to Donald Duck. You owe money to anyone who has purchased your debt by payment of value for it in exchange for ownership of it. The analysis is actually fairly simple, but it's also tedious, easily overlooked, which hands over control of the narrative to the foreclosure mill who will gleefully collect their own fees, collect fees for the servicer, collect fees for the other vendors, and the rest of the profits to be turned over to the securities brokerage firm as profits, not to pay down the debt. In this case, that would be the successor to Bear Stearns Financial Products, which could be Chase, but there are no records saying so. In any event, (coughs) it is all profit and not payment of debt, which means the act, the action, is not a foreclosure. They may have labeled it a foreclosure, but it's not a foreclosure if it's not for restitution of an unpaid debt. Suspend your disbelief and suspend your your beliefs because they're all probably wrong. So I've taken the wording from an actual case, but you can substitute U.S. Bank or any other party claiming to be trustee. Sometimes you'll see variations in the style of the case from the name used to start the foreclosure. You should attack that. It could be relevant. A simple change from Bank of New York Mellon to Bank of New York Mellon N.A. makes all the difference in the world. First one describes nothing at all. Second describes a banking institution that accepts deposits and make loans. But it didn't loan you money and it never paid any money to acquire your debt. So why is it even there? As stated in cases involving Chase Bank, they they can't say out of one side of the mouth, their mouth that it's all in the family. It's all the same for foreclosure. And then out of the other, that the subsidiaries are all separate legal entities to prevent the claimant from piercing the corporate veil or to prevent taxation of multiple entities for the same money. It is either one for all things or the other for all things. But they do... Anyway, and they'll continue to do so until someone challenges them. The court will hear the issues and decide. Many homeowners have won cases precisely on these points. Every business entity is a separate fictional person, person, a legal person, as allowed by law. That means you need to carefully look at who 
is being named as the plaintiff in a judicial foreclosure and who is being named as the beneficiary in a non-judicial foreclosure. In most cases, they are not being precisely named. You cannot actually identify them without making a bunch of assumptions or pointing to external documents. Remember that the pooling and servicing agreement usually is not submitted as evidence. Even if it is, that's not the, tr the trust agreement. The trust agreement names Bank of New York Mellon, in this case, on behalf of Bear Stearns. It has nothing to do with the certificate holders. So that's your primer for the evening, and it's a thumbnail sketch of how to analyze and uh, uh, defend illegal foreclosure by foreclosure mills who are playing games with the court. You have to play back. Have a good night, and we'll see you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.